If you will turn with me in your Bible to the first book of Kings and chapter 3, the first book of Kings and chapter 3, I want to read from verse 4 to 18. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that, that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great loving kindness, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great loving kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give thy servant, therefore, an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this thy great people. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked for the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern justice, Behold, I have done according to thy word. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there has been none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings, and made a feast to all his servants. And then, if you will turn in the, um, to the New Testament and to the letter of James, letter of James, chapter 1, verse 5, but if any of you lacketh wisdom, let him ask of God, 
who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting, for he that doubteth is like the surge of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And the same letter, chapter 3, from verse 13. <clears throat> Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good life his works in meekness and wisdom. But if ye have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that cometh down from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion and every vile deed. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without variance, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for them that make peace. And lastly, in the Ephesian letter, in chapter 1, from verse 17, Ephesians 1, from verse 17, For this cause I also, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which is among you, and the love which ye show toward all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe. Shall we just bow together in a word of prayer? To confess before you that without you we can do nothing. I can speak a lot of words and we can hear a lot of words. <clears throat> and Lord, it can be sound uh, uh, doctrine, it can be truth. But un unless you are the anointing, Lord, upon this time, upon my speaking and our hearing, Lord, there will be no eternal value or result. And Lord, as we have been before you, as we've worshipped you, as we have considered all your great love for us, now we ask, Lord, as we come to this, your word, Lord, be with us in this also. We take by faith that anointing for the speaking and for the hearing that, Lord, you will write your word in the fleshy tables of our hearts. Put something within us, Lord, that will take root and germinate and grow up and bear much fruit. Be with us, O Lord, in this evening, the last part of it, as you have been with us in the first. 
for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, those of you who've been with us in these uh, few days, you know that um, my responsibility in these evening sessions has been to take four characters that have been very much on my heart. They're all bound together. The lessons of their lives in many ways overlap. They are the four characters that together lead us to the establishment of the kingdom and the uh, building of the house of God and the fulfillment of uh, the purpose of God for his people. And those four are Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon. And if we were to sum up these ones in just a sentence, I would say the supreme lesson we learn from Samuel is ministry to the Lord. His ministry was not to things, not to the world, not even to the people of God first and foremost. His ministry was a ministry to the Lord. He learned to um, commune with the Lord. He learned to stand with the Lord. He learned to intercede before the Lord. He learned to worship the Lord. He learned to guard the interests of the Lord. That's the supreme lesson we learn from Samuel. And, and I suppose if I was to put it in a sentence the lesson of Saul's life, then it is, it is the man of flesh. But it's a little more than just the man of flesh that cannot stay upon the throne of God. He cannot come to the kingdom. Um, this uh, flesh is rebellious flesh. That's why it ends in witchcraft. It is, as the Lord says, the sin of rebellion is as the spirit of witchcraft and stubbornness is as idolatry and teraphim. And if we were to put into one word what we've learned from Saul's life, it is this. He has many noble characteristics. He is magnanimous in many ways. He is caring. He is responsible. He is modest. And yet there is in him something that cannot reach God's end. There is, in spite of all those many good qualities in his flesh, a rebellion, which in the final analysis he cannot go through with the will of God. He has to do his own thing. And if we were to put in one word what we've learned from the life of David, it is, I suppose, the phrase, a man after God's own heart. He falls actually more terribly than even Saul. And yet because he had a heart for the Lord, and because he was ready to be absolutely honest, with the Lord and with himself, finally he comes to the throne and to an established kingdom. Now, tonight, I want um, as simply as possible to consider Solomon. Now, Solomon is a very complex 
character. And um, uh, believers are basically very divided on Solomon. There are those, especially amongst Christians, um, with Gentile background, they, ha- they find of Solomon a great embarrassment. Um, they don't understand why the word of God crows over him and, and says how wonderful he was and the glory of Solomon and, and, and how he's fulfilled the purpose of God. They, they, all they can see are so many faults in, in Solomon. And, and then you get um, people trying to explain it away that really the house of God should never have been built. That the Lord meant a tabernacle. There was a whole teaching. It's gone out of fashion these days. But there was a whole teaching a century or two ago that the Lord never meant there to be a temple. And uh, that this was a terrible mistake. Uh, The Lord meant it to be a tabernacle that was a kind of prefab, if you understand what I mean, that could be put together because the people of God were really only sojourning on this earth. Um, But... uh, we, I, I don't think that is the, um, the fair way to look at Solomon's life. It is very interesting that when we come to Chronicles, it doesn't say anything in Chronicles about Solomon's faults. It just um, refers to his wives, and, um, but it doesn't actually say anything. But the Record in the Kings that is very, very honest about what happened with Solomon. So I want you first and foremost to understand that Solomon finished what God began with Samuel and continued with David. And in one sense, Solomon is... Uh, the final act in this um, uh, fulfilling of God's purpose concerning his people. In another way, Solomon sums up all the lessons that we've learned. We find in him Samuel's life summed up. We find in him Saul's tragedy summed up. We find David's um, life and character summed up. So in one sense, he, as it were, um, completes the whole picture uh, for, for us. Now, I don't want to spend too long this evening because we've already had quite a, a long time already and uh, you must be getting quite sore sitting there on these not-so-comfortable uh, seats. Um, uh, so I don't want to belabor um, Solomon's the, the, the lesson we can learn uh, from Solomon but the first thing I want to say is this Solomon teaches us that the character God is looking for in the person who comes to the throne and the person who will build his house and see and experience the glory of the Lord filling everything, this person must supremely be a servant. No matter what happened to Solomon later, we see into the heart of a character 
that God desires to produce in every child of God in this amazing response that Solomon spontaneously gives to the Lord. You know, one of the best ways to test a person is to give them a dream. Because when the Lord comes to you in a dream, <laughs> now don't get any strange ideas about what I'm going to say, but when the Lord comes to you in a dream, you haven't got all your sort of everything ready there, you know, so that you can be artificial, you can project, you can think clearly the exact right thing to say. Um, uh, it's a quite spontaneous thing. And in this dream, the Lord comes to Samuel, uh, to um, Solomon and says to him, ask me what you want me to do for you. Now Solomon could have asked all kinds of things. He could have said, Lord, I need the wherewithal to absolutely dazzle the heathen nations around us. I want you to give such a splendor and such a prosperity and such a blessing that Egypt will be knocked into a cocked hat. And Babylon and all the rest of them, Syria and all the ites all around us, they'll just be flattened by seeing this glory. Now, of course, Lord, it'll all be your glory. But I want you to do something that will make this throne that you brought me to and this kingdom that you've established to be absolutely sensational as a testimony. The Lord would have seen right through it. Or he could have said, Now, Lord, I want you to destroy all these enemies. Lord, just let them die, drop dead. Let them have strokes, Lord. It's up to you how you do it. Heart attacks, cancer, a few other things. Just let them be removed, Lord, all of them. I don't want to have to have a purge, a kind of Marxist purge, of all these unpleasant elements in the court and around me. You know, Lord, there are all kinds of people plotting. Would you just take it into your own hand and just wipe them out one by one? And then we can get on, Lord, with serving your interests. The Lord would have seen right through it. Solomon said, Lord, you were very good to my father. And one of the greatest goodnesses that you have expressed to my father is to cause one of his poor sons to sit on the throne in his place. But I am very young and I'm very inexperienced. I just don't know how to go out and to come in, meaning into the presence of the Lord as well as before the people. I just don't know how to go out or to come in. I don't know how to deport myself. I don't understand everything, how I can act as it were, glorify you in this way. I need a wise and an understanding heart. 
so that I can discern justice for these people, discern between good and evil, and will be able to rule or judge this great people that you have chosen. Now, I say that reveals something of service. That's not the kind of royalty that most Americans imagine royalty to be. I mean, I always say to folks over this side, and I don't want to be rude, uh, but I always say to folks over this side, it's very hard for folks in the States to understand really what a kingdom's all about. Because you're in a republic. And um, you don't believe in kings. I quite understand that. I mean, especially the last ones you had here were so imbecilic. <laughs> um, uh, the Georges, you know. I understand that entirely. But the fact still remains that there's an idea of in, in those who are Republicans, you know, those who believe in uh, uh, the whole sort of... I'm not doing the party, you understand what I mean. I mean, in the Republican system, <clears throat> they, they, they have an idea about kings that somehow or other they sit there dressed in marvelous robes with a great heavy crown on their head and an enormous orb in one hand and a scepter in the other, and they just sit there waiting to be admired dripping with diamonds and jewels and, and everything else. You know what I mean? The, it's an anachronism, you know. It's antique. It's, it belongs to, to the past. They don't understand, really, that real kingship is a matter of service. Now, when we come to the biblical idea of kingship, we see it, of course, in Jesus, who came, he said, to be the bond slave of all. This is God's king. There wasn't a drop of anything but royal blood in the veins of Jesus. And yet, he was a servant from beginning to end. It was his father's business he was about. Everything was to do with his father. He even in the night before he was betrayed washed the feet of his, of his disciples saying, I'm leaving you an example. This is kingship. Now this is entirely foreign to many people because their whole concept of coming to the throne is authority and power and being able to throw your weight around and having lots of people running at your beck and call. They don't understand anything like this, that, that kingship is to serve. But here we see it in Solomon right at the beginning of his reign, when he was still young, we see a character of service. I believe that that is all important. Character is never produced or matured, developed, by self-pleasing. Self-worship, self-aggrandizement. Service is 
only produce when we're prepared to lay down our lives in sacrificial service. Solomon served the Lord. And um, he became the builder of the house on the Lord. Whatever faults and failings he might have, the one thing he did was that which had been on the heart of the Lord from the beginning. He actually built the house of the Lord. Now there is another point here which um, Floyd has already um, uh, uh, expressed, and I just want to un underline it. That's all uh, this evening. The very name Solomon, actually, Nathan the prophet gave Solomon a name when he was born, and it was Jedidiah, which in Hebrew means beloved of the Lord, just as David means beloved. Beloved of the Lord. But David called him Solomon, in Hebrew, Shlomo. And this means peace. It comes from the word Shalom, Shlomo, peaceful, or his peace, peace. Now here we learn a, a tremendous lesson. David was not allowed to build the house of the Lord because he was a man of war. And the Lord said, you shall have a son and he shall be a man of peace. And he shall build the house of the Lord. Now, can I just get something over straight away? Hebrews 4 that Floyd um, uh, referred to is that Sabbath rest, which means we've ceased from our own stripings and ceased from our own works and entered into the rest of the Lord. Now, I don't know if this is too much for you, but my experience is this. Wherever I go, people who begin to get church truth and begin to get it into their heads and not always into their hearts start fighting. Before you've gone anywhere, there's all this unrest and confusion and division and faction and this one wants this and that one wants the other and you've got brothers clashing together all the time and the sisters probably clashing just as much, I don't know. But all I know is that wherever I go, I see the brothers like bulls charging one another. And this is supposed to be the house of the Lord. What in the world is wrong with us? Is the house of the Lord just to be a place for the American success syndrome to be played out? Everyone has got to reach their own fulfilled ambition. Everyone has got to become a powerful elder, a powerful minister of the, uh, of the, of the uh, word. Why can't men die? Why can't we fall into the ground and die? And then out of the ashes, the Holy Spirit would produce the body of the Lord Jesus. But for some reason, we have to fight and fight and fight. Now, 
don't get me wrong, I'm not wanting to hit at you folks at all um, on this side of the Atlantic, but your, your glory is your success in Rome, and it is your greatest curse. At the root of the whole American dream is the success story. Anyone can reach the top through sheer ability. Not because he has the right kind of blood, as in Europe and Britain. Not because he has the right connections, as in Europe or Britain. Not because he's gone to the right school, as in Europe and Britain. But simply because he has ability. But this marvelous freedom can become a curse. Because everyone is judged on whether he's a success or not. And therefore, there comes a drive into everything, a self-centered, egoistic drive to be something in the house of the Lord, to, 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 to grasp, as it were, the ministries, to use the gifts that we might reach the top that somehow or other we might be a success in the eyes of our family and a success in the eyes of our brothers and sisters. My dear friends, when the Lord came to Solomon, Solomon could have just said that, Lord, give me success. I need success. There's nothing like success to breed success, Lord. And if all these my enemies see that I am a success, they will be silenced. And all my brothers of the royal blood, they won't try to take the throne from me if they see I'm a success. But he never said. All he asked for was that he might be given a wise and understanding heart that he might go in and go out before the Lord and before the people. That is service. Now, please, even if you feel uncomfortable with Solomon because of certain aspects of his life, please get this lesson. His name means peace. And the house of the Lord is never built through infighting. It is never built by one after the other, falling into factions, fighting things out with one another. It's never done that way. It's done by falling into the ground and dying. Then, even if everybody else has ambition, something's happened in you. You know, my dear brothers and sisters, especially some of you brothers, let me say this, there is nothing like the rest of being freed from this self-energy for success. You can't rest in the Lord when you're in this state. But when you've died 
to your own ambitions and died to your own reputation and died to even your own gift and your own ministry, then you are free to be the servant of the Lord. What does it matter if people walk over you? What does it matter if people take away your reputation? There was a godly old brother who was tremendously used of the Lord in Scandinavia in the early part of this century. His name was Pure Christiansen. He was an old Lutheran Danish pastor. Everyone knew him. Uh, when Brother Nee went to Denmark, it was, of course, in connection with Pastor Pure Christiansen as well as with some others. But this dear Pastor Pure Christiansen learned a great lesson. And it was very funny. Whenever I went in Scandinavia years ago, people used to tell me this. I mean, they used to say, do you know what Pastor Pure Christiansen said? I went up to him after a meeting and I said, that was too long. And he said, oh. And he would search in his thing and he would open his wallet and he would take out a silver of flour, and he said, I must give this to you. I have promised the Lord I shall pay for everybody who keeps me humble. <laughs> Everywhere to Scandinavia, I don't know how much money he spent. He, he always gave something to anyone who criticized him or took away his reputation because he said, you're doing me such a service. Now, it's not just a fairy story, but you see, there's something in us, you know, that, oh, we can't, we can't bear criticism. We can't bear have our re having our reputation taken away. We can't bear being made into a doormat. But, you know, really, if you can only look at it like this, only the Lord can bring you to the, to the throne. Your brothers and sisters can't put you on the throne. Nor can you put yourself on the throne. Only the Lord can bring you there. And if you will only let the Lord do this kind of work and produce in you the, uh, the character of sacrificial service, you will become a man of peace. You know, for division, it takes two. Have you ever thought about that? It always takes two to have a real division. Because if one person won't take it on, it's not really a division. It's only a sort of <laughs> rebellion in a way. I mean, it's not actually a division. But if you come against me and I come against you and you start spitting fury at me and I start spitting fury at you, you have a division. But supposing when you come at me you spit fury and I just go down. I allow you to do it, the whole thing. It's not a division anymore. And I'll tell you something else very interesting. The Lord takes you on. Now, your spitting of fury is the Lord's business. Well, I mustn't, I'm tempted to spend too long on this, but it's not good. Uh, all I want to get over to you is that this character of Solomon, this character that we see in Solomon, is a character of sacrificial service and it, is, it is something to do with peace. 
And no man or woman has that peace which passes understanding unless they know something of that self-life being dealt with. You can't know the peace of the Lord in all its fullness till you've entered spiritually into that Sabbath rest. Now, if you don't understand that, all right, leave it. Just ask the Lord to reveal it to you in his own good time, but he will. Then there is something else that I find very amazing about Solomon. In the Hebrew, it isn't, in, the, in our English, an understanding heart. This is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, um, I will give you a wise and an understanding heart. In the Hebrew, it is a hearing heart. But, of course, it doesn't just mean a heart that can hear. It, it, that's why you've got it in English, an understanding, because it's a, a Hebrew idiom. And um, it means a, a, an understanding heart. But the idea is this. You will never have understanding if you don't hear the Lord. The basis of all wisdom is to be instructed by the Lord. And the Lord wants to instruct, but if we don't hear, we will never get wisdom. Now, in the same passage, in um, 1 Chronicles uh, and chapter 1, we find it's wisdom and knowledge. He asked for wisdom and knowledge. And I, don't, I think most of you know the difference between wisdom and knowledge, don't you? I, knowledge is to do with facts. Wisdom is what to do with the facts. Okay? I always tell a story. Forgive me, those of you who've heard this story. Many, many years ago, when I was living in England at Halford House, we had a magnificent fuchsia bush. It was one of those standard bushes, for those of you who are gardeners. Had a trunk about that... Uh, deep. It was a very old bush in a marvellous old antique pot and it was outside my study window so I saw it all the time. And it was up this height with a magnificent top and one year it, it came out in all its leaves and then all its blooms, blossom came out, the, the buds and then suddenly the whole thing dropped, not the leaves, but all the buds fell off. And then I couldn't believe it. They were there in a great thick uh, carpet. Uh, the, and I said to the sister who looked after the house, um, the practical side of it, someone's hit that bush. They should be more careful. Someone's collided with it. Oh, no, I don't think so. Yes, I said, nothing else would shake off all those blossoms like that. Well, she said, I'll keep my eyes open. And then all the blooms came again a week or two later. And then the same thing happened again. So then we had in the fellowship two of the leading botanists in, the, uh, in Britain and in the British Commonwealth. Um, they were at the herbarium in Kew Gardens. One of them was one of the top eight botanists in the world. He was a very godly man. And I asked him, could you please come in and look at the fuchsia bush? Yes, of course he would come in. He was a very distinguished looking old gentleman. And he came in, and I've never forgotten it. He went, he bent down, and he looked at this bush, and he plucked a leaf off, and he held it up to the light, and then he scratched the, the bark 
of that stem and then he parted the earth and looked at one of the roots and then he gave me the most amazing dissertation on the pedigree of this fuchsia bush. He told me that it was, I think if I remember, two different things that had been crossbred, uh, one from Brazil and one from somewhere else and he gave me all the Latin names and I stood there absolutely with my mouth open and my, a kind of glazed look in my eyes and finally he said, um, well, I think it could have this wrong with it or that or the other. And he named three diseases. And I said to him, well, what should we do? And he looked at me totally blankly. He, he, he said, I don't really know. So then I thought I would try another younger man who was also one of the top botanists and I got him and he went through the same motions. He plucked a leaf off and scratched the thing, maybe the other way round, but still it was the same thing. And he, he didn't give me quite such a long dissertation, but he told me, well, it could be this or it could be that. And I said, well, what shall we do? And he looked at me blankly. These men had knowledge. They, had no, they knew all the facts. I mean, they knew exactly what kind of fuchsia bush this was, how it was a hybrid. It had two or three things in its background, a magnificent thing, wonderful, and must be kept at all costs, and, and all this kind of thing. And, and the whole history of its background, they couldn't tell me what to do. Now, above us, there was a market garden, and in it was a dear old man who became the basis for the whole great radio series that, as far as I know, is still going on today, 30 years later. His name was Dan Archer. He couldn't even speak the Queen's English. He had a real country uh, brogue. And I went up to him and I said, Dan, do you think you could come down and look at the fuchsia bush? Something's wrong with it. He said, yeah. And he came down the thing and he took, and he looked at this bush and he looked at the leaf. He did the same thing. And then he scratched the thing and then he looked, and then he said, you know what this bush needs? No, I said. It needs a good dose of Eno's salts, he said. Now, Eno's salts were sold all over Britain for inner cleanliness. So I thought he was trying to be funny. So I said, oh, ha, ha, ha. So I said, well, I mean, Dan, now come off it. What am I? He said, I'm not joking, he said. You go out, he said, down to the chemist, he said, to the drugstore, and get some Eno's salts, and you give it one tablespoonful a day. I said, Dan, do you want me to be the laughing stock of the whole of the fellowship? If they find out I'm giving a tablespoonful of of Eno salts, they will laugh themselves silly. Well, he said, if you want the thing to die, he said, don't do it, but he said it will recover in no time if you do it. Well, you know, I thought to myself, and being a proud person, I thought, no, I can't do it. Someone's bound to look out the window just as I'm doing it. I said, well, what are you doing? So I said to Margaret, who looked out the house, Margaret, you've got to go get Eno's salt, and you've got to put in one, and she went and did it. She was a very humble person. So she rushed out, bought this thing, came back, she put it, and do you know that within two weeks the bush had recovered? Now, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> Dan Archer had wisdom. He knew what to do with the facts. He knew the thing was ill, but he knew that there was one particular thing that old bush needed. And it had to be given. Now, that is knowledge and wisdom. My dear friends, how we need knowledge and wisdom. 
Many Christians have no idea of the facts. They don't, un- they don't understand what's happening in the world. They don't understand where we are in the purpose of God. They don't, they don't even have a knowledge. They're just at sea. Sometimes when things happen in our families, we don't understand it. We don't even have the facts. When things happen in our fellowship, we don't understand it. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Because to to this Solomon, God revealed that the house of God was an absolutely central fact to the purpose of God being fulfilled. And when you hear Solomon's marvelous prayer, you suddenly realize he understands, he's got the facts. Only God could have revealed those facts to him so that he understood the facts about the purpose of God, that the Lord wanted that temple to be built so that his name could dwell there. Do you understand? But he had more than that, he had wisdom. When you listen to his, his dedicatory prayer, you suddenly understand. He says, if there is a man who has sinned and gone to the ends of the earth, if he will turn and look towards this place where you've caused your name to dwell, then, Lord, forgive him and bring him back. And if our armies fail when they go out, to walk because of sin and they turn towards this place where you have caused your name to dwell, then forgive them and give them victory. And if there is famine in the land and the... And it's here and it's clear. It's facts. But few have wisdom. There are so few people who know how to apply the facts. So we play at churches. I go sometimes to places where people are quite clear on certain things to do with the church, but there's no life. It's almost as if the truth of the church has become a central foundation upon which they meet. That's not the Lord. We need to understand. This is the lesson. From Solomon. Solomon's wisdom is proverbial. The whole world came to hear Solomon. It is said of him that there was nothing to do with trees, or birds, or animals, or plants, that he could not talk about. He, he, God gave him such a wisdom. It is said of him that he himself um, uh, created 3,000 proverbs of which we have a whole selection in the book of Proverbs. This Solomon, if we believe to this one, is the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. And therein is revealed a wisdom that without the Lord, if we don't see what the purpose of God is, if we don't see what the burden on God's heart is, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You might as well eat 
and drink and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die anyway. There's no great point to living. Don't be too righteous and don't be too bad <laughs> because you're going to die anyway. Uselessness, uselessness, all is uselessness. But when you come to the Song of Solomon, which tradition also tells us was revealed to Solomon in a dream, we suddenly come face to face with a burden on the heart of God. For in this Jewish tradition we are told that this was not some bawdy little love ditty as has liberal theologians have told us. A collection of love ditties based on Syrian uh, customs. Such nonsense. We are told in Jewish tradition that God revealed in an allegory the love in his heart for his own and what he wanted of them, the union and communion he desired. And suddenly it is no longer vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's value, value, all is value. The whole of your life and all its circumstances and situations are suddenly re related to an end of the Lord, to something the Lord wants to do with us, something he wants to do in us. It is no longer emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness. It is fullness, fullness, all is fullness, Pur purposefulness, purposefulness, all is purposefulness. Do you understand? That's why I've always said to all those that I've had anything to do with teaching, never study the little book of Ecclesiastes without the Song of Solomon, for they are meant to go together. Now, come back again to this matter of this hearing heart. Don't you think this is our problem? How few leaders there are who hear the Lord. It's not how many faults you have or how many weaknesses you have. I, I wish that my faults and weaknesses would be cut right down to not just a minimum but to nothing. And I wish the same for you. But I want to tell you something quite shocking. If I had to choose between a leader who has weaknesses and faults and who hears the Lord and a, we a leader who doesn't have so many weaknesses and faults but doesn't hear the Lord, I will choose the leader who hears the Lord every time. And that is the way the Lord dealt with Solomon. It's the way the Lord dealt with David and it is the way he dealt with Saul. Because Saul, with so many good characteristics, could not hear the Lord. He bent everything to his own self-fulfillment. He took shortcuts even though he was warned not to take them. This is the lesson that comes home to us. Do we have a hearing 
Huh? I've told some of you this before, that when I was young in the Lord, I was very arrogant. Um, probably still am. Um, but I was very arrogant because I was always telling everybody when I thought they were stupid or foolish or I thought it was nonsense. And I don't know why it was, but I didn't seem to have any fear of anybody. And I would say to a pastor, who was a really well-known man and in Britain, a Keswick speaker, I would say to him, I think that that is nonsense. And he would say to me that I had no business as a kid of 13 years of age <laughs> to say that something that was said from the pulpit in this famous Baptist church was nonsense. But you see, he always taught us that we belong to the Lord and that we were members of the Lord's body. And then he came and said to me, are you going to join the membership? And I said, I thought I was already in it. <laughs> oh, no, we're living in the 20th century, not the first. And I asked him, where in the Bible could I find it? And I couldn't know what's everybody looking at. <laughs> Something there. Where? <laughs> well, never mind. Oh, I see. Oh, well, I'm not worried about him, poor little thing. Now, if we'd got Solomon here, he'd tell you the whole history of this. <laughs> um, I remember saying to him, where is it in the Bible? And he was scandalized that I could ask such a question. Of course, it wasn't in the Bible. He said, we're living in the 20th century. We, we've had to evolve this over the years, you see. He said. <laughs> and I told him I thought it was nonsense. And he said that was the most terrible thing he'd ever heard from a young person. So I was rather arrogant, I have to say that. And, and uh, I used to go round this... Auntie Dagmar used to give me some money every end of every Sabbath, on the end of the Saturday, if I could quote without mistake a whole por portion from the Word of God. So I used to learn this every week, and I went around, but I was always full of questions, you see, about what I'd learned, and I used to say, well, what does that mean, Auntie? And she would say, well, it means... I'm, and I said, well, I don't, I can't understand that. Now, you explain it to me more, and she would... And in the end, she said to me, listen... She said, in the Bible it says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him if he ask in faith, nothing wavering. Now, she said, I want to know from you, do you or do you not lack wisdom? <laughs> and I said, oh, I lack wisdom. Now, she said, we've got down to a good basis. Now, if you lack wisdom, you can ask the Lord on the basis of this scripture, and he gives it, and he doesn't argue. He doesn't upbraid. He will give it to you. And you know, it sank into my heart. 
And from that moment, I began to ask the Lord every day. I don't know for how many years I asked the Lord. I, every time I got on my knees, I said, Lord, I don't have any wisdom. Please give me wisdom. Now, you must remember, I'd never read my Bible when I was 12 years of age. I'd never been in a place of worship. I had no knowledge of any... I used to say at school that I thought Jesus was a myth. I, I said, I don't believe he even existed. I think it's those... Terrible Christians have thought up this person. <laughs> so I can only say that I found that the Lord kept his word in the sense that he gave me understanding. And I believe he can give that to everybody if they will only ask. This is the lesson of Solomon. What do you want me to do for you? Give me a wise and hearing heart. This matter of hearing is so important, I can't, I can't overemphasize it. Really, I cannot overemphasize it. To hear the Lord, it is the heart all God's training, all God's education and instruction. I'm almost tempted to stop here and give you another illustration from the Word of God. In one of the greatest uh, characters in the Old Testament, Elijah, how God used Elijah. How God used him in prayer. How God used him as a testimony. When he said, the heavens shall not rain for three years, it didn't rain for three years. And then when he got on his knees and he said to the king, it will rain and the heavens were like bras. He got on his knees and he prayed and he prayed until it happened. You know the story. You know the story of Elijah up on, the, on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal and how he took on single-handed the whole array of evil in the land and represented, as it were, the Lord. You know the story. You know all the triumphs of Elijah, this great man of God, to the point where we imagine that service for the Lord is all and only a matter of wonders and signs. But Elijah had another lesson to learn. After the great triumph from Carmel and then the rains that came in answer to prayer, you remember Jezebel wrote him a note. Now Jezebel, according to our tradition, was not a great tank-like lady. She was a little slip. So feminine. And she wrote a note. And all she said in this note was this. God help me. If I don't do to you by this time tomorrow what you've done to my prophets. And without waiting without waiting to ask the Lord, without giving the Lord even a chance to speak to him, Elijah fled for his life. 
out of Galilee, through Samaria, to Jerusalem, into the Negev. And then he flung himself under a juniper tree and said, Lord, let me die. And the Lord said, what shall I do now? I really should talk with him. <laughs> but he is in such a state, I cannot. So the Lord said to the angels, go and cook him breakfast. And the angels came, and they, you know the story. I'm, I'm not making this up, by the way. It's all in the book. <laughs> the angels cooked him a breakfast, and then they, they said, Elijah, breakfast. And Elijah ate it, and he was so worn out, he said, I just want to die. And he slept the whole day, because you don't travel in my part of the world in the day by foot. He slept the whole day under the shade of the juniper tree. And then the angels came again. They shook him and said, Supper. And Elijah, and he went 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that food in the wrong direction. Isn't the Lord amazing? The Lord sometimes helps us go in the wrong direction. Don't think that if angels appeared to you and said something, it means you're in the right, going the right way. It would be you're going in the wrong way. So I will say to people, see, people get so excited about these things. But I mean, in actual fact, he was going in the wrong direction. The angels were helping him because the Lord was going to catch him at the other end. And when he finally got to the other end, you know, he went up to Mount Horeb and the Lord said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now's the first time the Lord could talk with him in this way. Well, he said, Lord, you know, I'm the only one left, Lord. They've killed them all. And now they want my life. And then the Lord said, stand back. And suddenly there was a tremendous wind that smote the mountain and all the rocks fell down. And Elijah loved every minute. Oh, he said, Lord, that was wonderful. And then the Lord said, wait. And there was an earthquake and the whole place shook and Elijah didn't, ah, he, this was uh, Elijah's element. He said, marvelous Lord, marvelous, what a show. And then the Lord said, wait. And then a fire came and burned everything through the mountain. And Elijah said, oh Lord, this is so wonderful. And then there was a stillness. And a stillness small voice. And when Elijah heard that voice, he collapsed in a heap. He wrapped his mantle round his head and he bowed down and he said, Lord, I'm no good. He was stubborn. He, he went through the whole excuse all over again. Lord, they've killed all these people. He said, now they're going to try and kill me. But what the Lord was saying was this, Elijah, why did you come here? Who told you? Who told you to come here? Do you get what I'm trying to say? What the Lord was saying is this, you've got to hear me. You don't just panic. Sometimes when we panic, God has to go with us in the panic. Because there's no way he can get through to us. He cooks us meals and helps us go in the wrong direction. 
because only when we're a little calmer can the Lord really say, now let's get this sorted out. I say that was the greatest lesson that Elijah ever learned. You could have described Elijah's ministry as earthquake, wind, and fire. Those you could almost say were the elements, the symbols of his ministry. And there are many people who seem to think that that's what ministry is all about. It's uh, earthquake, wind, and fire. Well, thank God, there are outward signs and wonders. But if we don't hear the voice of the Lord, it doesn't mean anything. Well, now I must finish. The last thing I just want, and so we've already more or less said it, is that Solomon is the one who builds the house of the Lord. Now I've already said that's the heart of everything. And um, when you begin to see how Solomon understood this, he explains in his prayer how the Lord from the very beginning had desired this and how he had brought them out of Egypt for this very reason. This, he said, is the explanation of our history. This is the explanation of our election. This is the explanation of our destiny. Only wisdom could have given him such understanding. There are a few Christians who understand that that spiritual house that God is building is the explanation of our history and the explanation of our election and the explanation of our destiny. So few understand it. Yet it is everywhere in the New Testament. This is the character God looks for. A builder of the house of the Lord. And why? Because when we build the house of the Lord, the glory of the Lord can fill it. And in the end, that means it is a vessel for His glory. Where His glory will dwell. Now it is true the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord, but the house of the Lord, that is something special. The house of the Lord is where his glory dwells. Well, we must finish, but I have to, in all fairness, one last thing, there's a warning. And so here we come to this last of these four characters to do with the kingdom of God and its establishing, coming to the throne of the Lord and reigning, building the house of the Lord and fulfilling his purpose. And here we have the warning. Solomon compromised. One has to have some sympathy with Solomon. He wanted to make peace with all the nations round. And the way it was done in those days was to marry the princesses of the royal families 
of the houses. So the first person he married was Pharaoh's daughter. She wasn't a believer. She didn't belong to God's covenant people. In fact, he, he didn't even want her to live in the palace that was near to the house of God because he said it was holy. <laughs> he built her her own palace. Isn't that terrible? But even more sad, once he married these ladies, part of the alliance and pact was that they should be allowed to have their own shrines and worship in their own way. And so Solomon allowed a certain hill just outside of the old city, the continuation of the Mount of Olives, where all these wives could have their gods. And the most terrible thing is this, the word of God tells us, Chimos, the god of the uh, Moabites, and uh, um, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and the Ashtoreth, the um, Astarte, the goddess of the Phoenicians, all of these. Now you have to understand that that Chimos and that Molech, your firstborn, had to be thrown into the flames. Chimosh, uh, you killed the child first, and then it was burnt in the arms of this idol. But the Molech had a great open uh, belly and a great furnace inside, and the child was thrown in. And they had a roll of drums so that nobody could hear the scream of the child as it went in. Molech, the spirit of Molech, is still with us in the Middle East. That's why little children are being sacrificed. It is the same ancient spirit and principality. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this. Here is this man whom God loved so much. This man whom God brought to the throne. This man who wanted only to serve the Lord. Who longed to be at peace so that he could build the house of the Lord. This man who had a hearing heart. And suddenly we find he compromises. Here is a warning to every one of us. We are never safe until we come finally into the presence of the Lord. In other words, all the way through our life, we have to be alert and watchful because the devil is going round like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This is not said to make you afraid. It's to make you realize that your only safety is in the Lord. You can build the house of the Lord and still somehow compromise. May God help us. May the Lord give us a heart like David and a heart like Solomon. Christian theology believes that Solomon died a backslider. But Jewish theology says that Solomon in his last years, returned to the Lord. And actually, he, it was in those years that he compiled
the Proverbs. I can't help feeling one day we shall see Solomon. What I want to be able to say to you and feel an experience for myself and for you is that we should reach the end of the Lord without being turned away and diverted and only the Lord can do that. May he give us grace so that you and I may know in our circumstances and situations, in our family life, in our business life, in our church life, the Lord at work producing character in us, the kind of character that has to come to the throne and that will reign with the Lord Jesus. May he produce a character in us that means we can build the house of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, give us this kind of heart that serves. Give us, Lord, we pray, a hearing heart. You only can do it, Lord. We bring ourselves to you in all our need. We don't want, Lord, to be turned aside. We don't want, Lord, to compromise but we want to be those who are filled with your Spirit and come to your glory. In your word, you have said, the God of all grace, who has called you unto his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, himself established, strengthened, perfect you. Lord, may it be so with every one of us here in this place today. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, and by your Spirit make these lessons we've learned in these characters a living reality in every one of us. And make us those, Lord, who are in that recovery uh, move of your Spirit. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.